Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. Thank you for listening. Well, it's September and I didn't think it would ever get here. College football. It's in full swing. If you follow college football, I hope your team is doing well. I like to sit back with a bowl of chili and watch a good game. But it's still hot as Hades here in Florida, so I'll have to wait another couple months for that chili. Last week, I talked about J. Island Hynek and how he tried to explain away the Michigan lights as swamp gas. Well, this week, I'm going to cover the Phoenix lights and how the government tried to explain that one. March 13, 1997. Lights of varying descriptions were seen by thousands of people between 7.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. In a space of about 300 miles from the Nevada line, through Phoenix, to the edge of Tucson, it has been called the largest mass UFO sighting in our nation's history. These lights were in formation, in a V-shape, and they were going across the sky very slowly. Some of the witnesses describe one solid craft behind the lights, indicating that the lights were not each individual craft, but lights of one very large craft. Some of the estimates of the size of the thing are a mile to a mile and a half across. Just for comparison, one mile is 5,280 feet. The largest man-made ship on Earth is an oil tanker, Seawise Giant, at 1,504 feet. So this UFO was according to some of the witnesses, about three and a half times the size of our largest ship. And it creeped across the sky, slowly and silently. There was an artist rendering of this thing in the USA Today. It looks like an upside-down V with five lights spread out over the shape. Most of the witnesses said it had between six and seven lights on it. Not only did thousands of people see this thing, they also got pictures, and there were at least three videos taken of this UFO. The most famous video was taken by Dr. Lynn Katai. It shows five lights going across the sky very clearly. Among ufologists, the Phoenix lights have become one of the most iconic UFO videos ever filmed. 20,000 citizens reported seeing the strange object pictured in Dr. Katai's video. Kurt Russell was one of the witnesses of the Phoenix Lights. He says he saw six lights over the airport in absolute uniform in a V-shape. With so many witnesses to the event, the government was forced to investigate, bringing about what is believed to be one of the greatest UFO cover-ups in U.S. history. The government claims that the lights were not attached to an alien spacecraft, but were simply flares that were part of a military exercise. The next morning, the headlines read, Phoenix lights were flares. Military flares leave behind prominent smoke trails as they fall, which rules them out as a suspect. Also, the wind will move them around a bit. Flares come down on parachutes. The heat from the flares will affect the way they descend and move around. There is absolutely no way that flares, leaving no smoke trails, floating to the ground on parachutes, can stay in formation as they move across the entire sky. 
I just mentioned that Dr. Lynn Katai was the witness that took the famous video of the Phoenix Lights in 1997. She also wrote a book about the subject. She interviewed several witnesses and also introduced some of them to Ben Hansen, who did an episode of UFO Witness from Season 1, Episode 5 on the Phoenix Lights government cover-up, which included the Michigan Lights government cover-up in the same episode. Some of the witnesses chose not to be identified, which is totally understandable. One was a fighter pilot in the Air Force during the Vietnam War and says emphatically, those lights were not flares and considers the government's conclusion that they were flares to be a slap in the face. He had actually dropped those same kind of flares and had been on the ground while they were under attack and saw the flares from the ground. The flares are not going to stay in formation and fly for miles in a straight line because they are actually suspended by parachutes. All of the witnesses concur that these were not flares, so we can definitely say what they weren't. They were not lanterns. They were not conventional aircraft. What does that leave us? The alternative is they were from somewhere else. Two of the witnesses say they had close encounters with the 1997 UFO. One of the witnesses says he and his wife were returning from a restaurant and she called out, what are those lights? So he looked over and went, oh, that's just a flight of fighters. That was his knee-jerk reaction. A second after he said that, he looked again and noticed that it couldn't be a flight of fighters because the lights weren't really moving through the sky very fast. Another witness, David Parker, was on I-60 driving home from work. He saw this huge boomerang-shaped craft flying towards him. He slammed on his brakes. He jumped out of his truck, and he saw it as it flew over him. It was about 30 feet above his head, and he remembers thinking he could hit this thing with a rock. David was frozen with fear. He said it was gunmetal gray, and there were thousands and thousands of what he called thumbprints all over it. He said it was a huge craft that took up 70% of the horizon. He estimated that it was a mile to a mile and a half across. The closest light that he could see and look into looked like it had lava coming out of it. He said it poured out about four to six feet and then it stopped and went right back up. And then more would come out. He remembers thinking he better get back or he's going to get burnt. But there was no heat and there was no sound. Frances Barwood was a councilwoman at the time of the incident. She was approached by a reporter that wanted to ask her what she knew about the objects that were flying over Phoenix and if she knew if anybody was investigating the incident. I guess she talked to him because his article appeared in Saturday's paper. She gets into the office on Monday and her voice box was filled with over 700 people calling. So she started calling them back. What was amazing to her is that they were all giving the same description of the UFO. And she reasoned, how many people can describe something and it be the exact same description, only if it was real? So she asked for an investigation. She took the steps to start a government-backed investigation into the Phoenix Lights. She was stonewalled by the Phoenix governor at the time, Fife Symington. She got a memo that said, this is a non-issue. 
and they didn't want to touch it. After hitting a dead end with the local politicians, Frances appealed to the public to apply pressure to the government. She told everyone to call the governor's office because he's the head of state and that he could help. And I guess they did. I can't imagine what it was like in the governor's office with the phones blowing up with all these callers. The governor had an emergency press conference. In the press conference, he said that they caught one of the perpetrators. And during this press conference, they bring in one of the governor's aides wearing an alien costume, making a joke out of the whole thing. It was shocking to Francis that they were making a joke out of the whole thing. And she goes on to say that this was out of character for the governor because he was not known to have a sense of humor. Francis believes that he did it because they put pressure on him. I don't know who she's referring to when she says they. I guess the same shadow government that told J.L. and Hynek to say swamp gas. What's interesting to me is that you can now go on YouTube and see Fife Symington giving an interview admitting that he had seen a UFO. Something is way off with this guy. Just like Hynek in 1966, it seems that Symington was pressed to deny the existence of UFOs. Councilwoman Barwood was more convinced of a cover-up than ever, and days later, she was contacted by a veteran who claims to have irrefutable evidence. She got a phone call from a man named Richard Curtis, and he says he's got this all on video. Unlike the video shot by Dr. Lynn Katai, which shows a group of lights with no visible craft, Richard Curtis claimed that he had personally captured video of the UFO using high-quality equipment he said you could see the shape of the craft and you can see how big it was in comparison to the surrounding buildings and everything. He described that the lights were gaseous. He said the object flew right over his house and he knew it was a solid object because the lights illuminated the bottom of the craft and it blocked out the clouds and the stars. Richard promised to send a video copy to Francis's office. After a while of not getting anything, Francis thought maybe Richard didn't have a video after all. But when Richard called back a week later, it was clear that there were shenanigans going on. Richard calls a councilwoman a week later and asks, What did you think of the video? She says, I didn't get a video. Then he says, Two men from your office came by and picked it up. Apparently, two men in three-piece suits and hats paid Richard a visit and claimed to be from Councilwoman Barwood's office. This is Arizona in July, and it's 110 degrees outside. They convinced Richard to hand over the only copy of the video. Councilwoman Barwood doesn't even have any men working in her office. She has three women. In another article, in How and Wise, Curtis describes the men as fully covered in black three-piece suits, black shoes, black hats, black suitcases, etc. The men were not dressed in jackets or other gear, even though it was fairly chilly outside. And that struck Curtis as weird. We need to make up our mind. Was it hot or was it chilly? I keep running into things like this, which is an indication of mistruths. Lying. Someone isn't telling the truth here. That's why the police will interrogate suspects over and over again over long periods to see if their stories change, even in the slightest. Oh, and it gets better. 
Richard Curtis gets really sick, and they take him away in the ambulance, and nobody ever sees him again. Nobody knows where he is. He was so excited that he'd gotten all of this on video. Then the men in black showed up. They asked Curtis if he had made copies of the video. He said he hadn't had a chance to make any copies. The men said, okay, it's no problem. We'll make the copies. And then they took the film, the video. According to his neighbors, he had taken a faulty medication. They had changed his medication, and he had a bad reaction. Had been transported by ambulance to the hospital. There were no records of Curtis ever being admitted to any Phoenix area hospitals when Barwood started looking for him there. He didn't show up in the obituaries either. So Barwood started thinking, how did anybody even know about the tapes, had the videos in the first place? Then she decided to have her phone lines checked by a professional. He visited her house and conducted his test there. After that, he went out. He went outside. He wouldn't come back in the house. He came to the back door and he said, no, I'm not coming in. Yes, your phone is tapped. It's a government tap. Let that sink in just a little. According to skeptics, the bizarre light show was caused by man-made aircraft from Glendale's Luke Air Force Base or other neighboring military installations conducting training drills. The Phoenix lights, according to ufologists, were not of this world. According to Richard Doty, the former Air Force intelligence officer, the civilian sightings were done by Project Blue Book investigators, but the real mysterious cases were handled by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Their job was to disinform people, and there are some manuals that govern exactly how they do that. And there are some cases where the Air Force knew what these things were, and they were not from this earth. Now, this is coming from Richard Doty. His job was to mix lies with the truth to provide disinformation. I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. Also, when I'm looking into these cases, on several occasions, I find that people telling these stories conveniently leave out things that would argue against what they are trying to tell you. I'm trying to give you all the information I can and let you make up your own mind. A few months after the Phoenix Lights, in May of 1997, there was a sighting in Lakeport on the southern shore of Lake Oneida in upstate New York. Chad Gronoski looked out the window and saw three lights that seemed peculiar. They weren't airplanes. They got out of camera and started to record. First, there were three glowing orbs, then five, then twelve. It took three to five hours, and it was over the course of two days. More than 100 witnesses called in to the local authorities that night to report the strange lights from up to three hours away. A lot of skeptics will point to this being military flares. In fact, the local military base said it was flares. A few days later, there was a black, unmarked helicopter with a black disc on it going up and down the shoreline. As it was going over the houses, it was causing what seemed to be like electronic disturbance. The fire alarm was going off. Other electronics were acting wonky. They didn't know if the uh, black helicopter was searching for something or emitting something to try to erase the tape. 
Residents tried to look for answers to see if there was any helicopter activity at nearby Griffiths Air Force Base. The people at the base kind of laughed and said they didn't have any unmarked black helicopters, and they didn't believe the story. There are only three videos of the Phoenix Lights, and all of the owners have been harassed by the government, the infamous Men in Black. Chad remembers the night someone came looking for his family's recording of the Oneida Lake Lights. He was laying in bed, facing the windows. He rolled over because he thought someone was in the room, like there was a presence. He heard a noise, and suddenly there was a tall man, he refers to him as a gentleman, there's a tall gentleman in the room, and it looked like he had a hat, and he was mumbling. And Chad said, what do you want? And he said, I want the tape. I want the tape. He kept saying, the tape, the tape. Chad sat up and the dog in his parents' room moved. because He knew that because he could hear the collar jingle. The intruder turned quickly and then darted out of the room and down the hall. If Chad really believes this happened to him, then maybe he was dreaming it and thought it was real. I don't buy it. If I woke up, to find a stranger in my room, the whole house is going to know about it. And there could be shots fired. And nobody, I mean nobody, is going to get in without Charlie letting me know way before they get to the bedroom. If you think about it, people producing a show about UFOs and aliens would like for you to believe in UFOs and aliens. If you knew for a fact that they didn't exist, then you wouldn't bother watching or listening. Their job is to keep you believing, or not knowing, but trying to find out. So, if they find information that absolutely debunks their story, they surely aren't going to share it with you. I've seen footage, now this is going back several years. The footage shows lights in the V formation, or maybe they weren't in formation, but it showed the lights going out one by one. This is the Phoenix Lights. The show where I just got the most information didn't show that footage at all. Anyway, from what I remember, they took that video and they superimposed the mountains in the background. You couldn't see the mountains on the original video because it was filmed at night. And everything in the background was black. As you watch the video, the lights appear to go out because they're actually going behind the mountains in the distance. And they are all lined up perfectly. It is very damning evidence for the people trying to convince you that it was a UFO and they don't want you to see it. Another interesting story is this. According to Mitch Stanley and his mother, something real did pass over Phoenix on the night of March 13th. On the night of March 13th, Mitch and his mother were in their backyard and Mitch was doing some stargazing with his 10-inch telescope. Now, I've got a 10-inch Dobsonian telescope and it captures a lot of light. If you can point that thing in the right direction, you get a really clear picture of whatever you're looking at. The two of them see lights in that V formation, just like all the other people. Mitch tries to capture the lights with his telescope, and he manages to do so. He catches the leading light and notices that the light is actually two lights. They are the lights on the underside of squarish wings. Linda asks him what they are, and he says, planes. He looks at them for a little bit and moves on to something more interesting. After all, they're just planes. Linda doesn't even look at them because it's just planes. 
but everyone reported that it was one large vehicle flying low and slow and soundless. They were in Prescott at 8.15 and then south of Tucson at 8.45. That's 200 miles in 30 minutes or 400 miles per hour. That's not slow. Conventional planes can do that. That's reasonable. If they were planes going 400 miles per hour, they had to be at a high altitude for people to think they were going slow. The further the thing is, the slower it looks like it's going. That would explain why it appeared to make no sound. If you get far enough away, you can't hear it. Here's another interesting little tidbit. Linda went to work and told a fellow employee, Jack Jones, what her son Mitch had seen in his telescope. Jack was also an amateur astronomer, and when Barwood made her appeal for people to call and tell her what they saw, he called. He called Richard de Duarte at the Arizona Republic newspaper, and he called Barwood directly. To both, he said that a local amateur astronomer had seen the lights through a large telescope, and they were airplanes. Jones said both promised to have someone call back and take down his story and contact Mitch Stanley directly, but neither one did. Linda said they really don't want to know. Air traffic controllers claim they didn't see any air traffic that would explain the lights, but their systems work on planes' transponders. If there were a formation of planes, only the lead plane would have had its transponder on. If the lead plane turned off its transponder, then none of them would have shown up on air traffic controller scope. Military planes do turn off their transponders for various reasons, so they definitely could have been military planes. The Phoenix lights occurred over several nights, so it is very plausible that witnesses saw both flares on one night and a formation of planes flying at high altitude the next. As for the lights over Lake Oneida, On the video, they don't appear to be any kind of formation and could very well be flares seen from a long way away. The local Fox station did a story on it, and in the background you can hear the theme to the X-Files, so they weren't taking this seriously at all. I've given you a lot to ponder, and you can also go and do some research on your own. Then you can make up your own mind. Everyone can make up their own minds, and we can all come up with different conclusions. Believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show, I would like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Do you have a UFO story you'd like to share? Is there a UFO story you'd like for me to look into? Just email me at ufoandalienspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.